0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknism Chris, how are you doing this evening?
1: David, I'm doing pretty well. We uh we actually survived a pretty major live musical gig in the downtown arts district of Las Vegas. And I, I feel pretty good about it. Uh you know, we did our sort of North African trance influenced gamelin, David Lynch Lost American Highway, sort of thing. And then I did I did put up one one political piece about Kamala Harris. I liked and, it. And I yeah, liked thank it. you. Thank you. Well, we had come on, man. We had some fun. You know, remember when going out for like maybe you know a couple of, of drinks and a nachos thing with your girlfriend in wandering around and just checking out like some derelict weird industrial parts of town when that was fun and mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. didn't take it all you know too seriously so I, I think we we did we well we had fun and it isn't easy loading in you know real uh mallet size instrument sort of things, even I mean, we're not talking concert marimbas, but we are talking about some shit to move around and in that old roadie sort of way, you know. And so that means a whole thing about some of this the peripheral people, like you know, some burly guys. You know, we all have a little bit of worry about burly guys now, but we sure do like them when we need to move stuff around. And the girls who uh and they never worry about being called girls, the girls I'm talking about, who are actually there to help and do things and to make shit happen. You know, it kind of. It really works quite beautifully in an old school sort of way. And I really think that a lot of us are, are, are really desperate to have that happen again. So I'm in a really good frame that way. And also, before we get to anywhere, I, I want to um, flag to you personally, but also to our readers, a book that really has, uh, I, I think is just wonderful. I, I'm a huge devotee, student of the whole idea of missing persons. My stepbrother, you know, really indoctrinated me into mm-hmm. that, his disappearance. But the book is called The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wilderness uh, by John Billman. And it's published by Grand Central and I, I don't know how old the author is. I it, it, He looks to me to be not much older than you are. But it's a really wonderful book about, well, what it says about people going missing in America's wilderness, wildlands, areas. Uh, but I think it's like all good writing, you know, it's always a link back to something much bigger and cooler and I, I encourage people to, uh, to seek this young, you know, certainly younger than I am author out. Um, and I, I, off mic, I encourage, you know, David to maybe reach out to me if he has has any sort of uh, fictional sort of uh, aspirations, because I think he's a good writer. He's a clean writer. He's sharp. And he's onto an interesting topic uh, because people who go missing, uh, well, that's one of my great life uh, interests. But how is yeah. Mister Osborne, our teacher, embedded? Embedded in Lawton, Oklahoma.
0: Good. I'm doing good. Yeah. The um, of course you are the school. The school continues apace. I'm bonding further with the students. Although now that we're in week three of school you know, some things have started to pop up. I assigned the kids their first essay easy. I let them in easy and I already have a very clear chat GPT case. Um, and a student who a very uh, quiet girl um, who I would have never suspected anything of has been suspended for reasons. I'm not sure why. Um, so, I was talking to my mentor about the plagiarism deal. And I I said, you know, I'm just very, I feel disappointed. And she said, well, you know, I mean, it's, it was their assignment, not yours. And I said, Oh, I like that. That's interesting. So, um, and when I say very obvious, you know, the assignment was, well, I won't go, I won't bore you with the details of it, but it was just very clearly, just a biography of Elvis Presley that had been copied and pasted from, from, either chat GPT or Wikipedia. Um, but knowing the student and I mean, you can just look at it. It's one of those things, you know, it when you see it. So I'm a little, I'm disappointed about the plagiarism, but it was to be expected. But as far as the student relationships go, it's been really great. Um, I've got a great rapport with them and, um, I've just had to kind of uh, make sure that uh, the phones, the phones are a bit of an issue. I I will say that. Um, I have had to uh, get onto some to put their phones away, either when I'm speaking or when a classmate is speaking. And, you know, there's a few kids uh, who, you know, I'll be doing my, my spiel. We're talking about Arthur Miller's The Crucible now. And I'll look and they'll have full-on headphones in just looking at their phones.
1: Do, do no you have gear. your your high powered squirt gun in hand?
0: <laughs> That's a good idea. I shouldn't get the high powered squirt gun. No, I go over to them and I and I, no, I, I, I say I'm very, serious. I Oh, I know you're serious. Um, I don't. I go over to them and I say, uh, just very seriously, like you need to put that away right now. That's not what class is for. And if it becomes oh, no, a problem. No,
1: a shot of water right in the eye is so much more effective. Mm-hmm. So much mm-hmm. more effective. And on the, on the chat GBT thing, you know, I'm the only uh, instructor in my whole program who doesn't refer to AI, you know, involvement at all. I, I just don't mm-hmm. I, I don't mention it. Um, what I did do is is uh, have a full on, uh, you know, epileptic seizure in front of them with foam in the mouth and, Mm -hmm. and, and they really, they they start to panic and, and, you know, and then I, I, I come around and I say, well, thank you for being concerned. I'm a little bit concerned that no one actually called the campus police considering that you do have phones, you know, Mm -hmm. they they have phones. They don't have Mm -hmm. intellect. They don't have courage, you know, Phones are not
0: actually really
1: helpful unless you have some will behind them. But I said, you know, this is what's going to happen when I read your work. And I know it's not your work. I said, do you want to do that to me? And they don't know what to do there because it was such a good acting job that they really did freak out. You know, they really go, go. you know that's the thing they everyone knows what to do as long as it's programmed you mm-hmm. know and the moment you step outside the program people divide mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and there's one side that gets very afraid and there's one side that starts to vibrate and change color in a spiritual aura way. And there's, at the far end of that that other spectrum, there are some people going, thank God, this is what I came for. This Mm -hmm. is what I came for. And so, look, yeah, you know, just, well, play it like you mean it as, as you are, and I think you're doing a great job. I think that it's remarkable that you've made this transition into something that, you know, there were for generations people who did ma's in education which of course really didn't do anything (laughs) any good but you're coming at this from your own point of view and i know that what you're bringing to it is special and important and you look strong uh i think we've got to actually start doing these things on youtube because uh david's looking really good these days he's a good looking young man um but you know he has had some scruffy moments. He he had some sunburned dad lawn mowing moments, and <laughs> you know, there have been some he, there have been some ups and downs. But I like Mister Osborne the way he's looking now because he is looking like someone that you could really have some genuine uh, intellectual and spiritual confidence in, and I think that's what we need at all levels. But I think it's something that is so desperately needed at the teenage high school level. And that is a ministry. That is a ministry. And people who are uncomfortable with the term being ministers, well, I'm just sorry. that You're lost. You're lost. You know, it it is a great Mm -hmm. role done properly. It's important. Uh, And I really am excited about
0: what you're doing. So
1: I think that's a pretty good report.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm happy with it. I have been, August has been one of the busiest months of my life because I've been in uh, transition into this role. And I've also been in the midst of, but the, I'll back up for a second. The editing work that I do, I schedule it a few months ahead so that I'm covered for it. So this was a full month of editing along with a full month of teaching. And I'm, I finished up uh, the last thing that I was working on in an editing capacity yesterday. And today I read, I've ordered a bunch of Tim powers books and I've been, I'm starting on the Anubis gates. Now I got the Anubis gates, declare the stress of her regard, um, alternate routes, fault lines. Um, so I'm probably going to be reading Tim powers for the rest of the year. Wow. Well, there you go. Well,
1: I th- I think that's a good, you know, get, get, you know, uh, I I like getting focused. I think it's a it's a good you know good groove. And if you do have a a kind of an OCD sort of frame to start with, there's nothing to apologize for in in you know picking out some moments and some individual authors and artists and or just I don't know just vibrational grooves that get you. And follow those through as long as they keep your attention, you know?
0: I don't think there are enough secret history writers out there. I think that you could at times fall into that. Powers, obviously, that's his whole thing. But I think right now, in an age of oversaturated media and TikTok and YouTube, I feel like we are primed for the secret history novel to come back right because there's so On the video
1: much... game i am really i I'm, I'm wanting to launch a much larger idea of an immersive secondary reality that that begins in uh the paleolithic neolithic phase goes through alexandria goes through the renaissance goes through the age of exploration and discovery through to victorian england and uh you know, that edge of, of the, the 19th century, right into old Hollywood, old mm-hmm. Hollywood, and then the MK Ultra 1960s. So it's a seven part, uh, hide and seek secret world game where, um, you know, in very straightforward Pynchon esque terms, there are uh, two. Uh, adversarial secret societies at at work, which kind of brings to, you know, to frame uh, a lot of what my earlier, you know, when I was younger and and really thinking this was the new buzz, um, bringing that back, you know, in a way, and and bringing it back with a kind of educational force uh, that I think that the new dark ages that we're in, uh, thanks to liberal progressivism, uh, it, it, I think it would be an interesting tonic, and I think it might readjust the, the true liberal uh, mentality back to the intellectual standards that I grew up with. You know, so I, I, I think the secret history is, you know, it's it's well, I mean, what could be more apparent? You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what the old, you know that's what the Corpus Hermeticum said. You know, mm-hmm. in many places, what could be more obvious than what we're talking about? And people go, well, no, it's not. It's well, yeah, yeah, it is actually just just shift your lens a little bit and it's becomes perfectly in inescapably obvious. You know, totally. that's what you want to worry about is the inescapable.
0: On the uh, note of the video game, I know you're doing a band today. Do you have your band and your aphorism for us?
1: Yeah, look, I do. And I, I really want to celebrate some positivity because I've been a little bit, you know, native and my band's this sort of deconstructive sort of thing. But, you know, interesting uh, and important archaeology keeps happening around the world, Thank goodness, because its it, it's funding is very intermittent and it's not uh, done through oftentimes the obvious sources, uh, you know, really rich, you know, people as in the, the 19th century, uh, the government. It's just all a little bit intermittent, but a few years back and there's been some new stuff that's just been found, which is really cool, which made me rediscover this, but say in 2015 in uh, Peru, uh, a bit north of Lima, in, uh, well the, the, the remnants of high altitude people and I love that idea, you know, in Peru uh, a tomb was discovered from 2700 years ago which, you know, that's, I mean that feels like a long time to me And it was the tomb of the serpent jaguar priests. And it's called that because of a surviving ceramic creation that is a serpent with a jaguar head. And I I sent the image to you and I think that you will find and anyone who looks at it will note a distinctive design quality that is simply not African. It's not Indian. It's not Chinese. It is distinctive of a cultural aesthetic that extends from Mesoamerica to the Northern parts of South America. It doesn't extend all the way through South America. I agree with that. There is a limit to that. But it is a marvelous creation under any circumstances and from 2,700 years old. So the Serpent Jaguar Priest is the name of my band. And they are a full-fledged world music band that is resuscitating ancient, meso- and Northern South American music, from vocal to uh, nose flute, to played flute, to various forms of percussion, to animal imitations and to outright animal recordings. I'm very proud of the animal recordings I've made, um, which I incorporate into um, certainly my first album, which is available for purchase. It's called Victrola in the Jungle. And it includes, amongst other things, a beautiful chorus of banjo frogs from a very deep swamp in Indonesia, which I contracted a lot of leeches from. And I would just ask that people might check that out because you can go read someone's books and they haven't had leeches all over them. And they haven't contracted malaria. They haven't really worked for it as I have. So I'm going to be proud about that. But this band is totally about the rediscovery of something that you and I started talking about from the very beginning of the ancient world magic of communication in profoundly multimedia terms and using all sorts of possible ranges of communication to create a music that will impact upon the listener before semantics. It will, in a sense, short-circuit the language phenomenon and reach us in a way that influences consciousness immediately, dreaming memory, which is consciousness and dreaming in another form, but the sharing of experience in ways that challenge our language. You know, so this is a really, really positive uh, twist on my deconstructive bands kind of devouring pop music and destroying things and being mean and snarky. These are really just great, in a sense, true world folk musicians who are simply unloosed in time.
0: That's the amazing, of Jaguar priests. That's an in- instant purchase for me, especially with a name like that. Um, I like what you said. Not to get too off track, I do like what you said about the world of dreams and memories being connected. Because to me, that means that you have to get your conscious mind away from screens. You have to sleep properly. You have to exercise, not just for your physical health, but for your ability to remember anything and to dream. So, your ability to read the past and the future is tied to taking care of yourself. And you can't grow if you can't remember anything. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. But how many people, you know, we joke a lot on the show about how many people can't remember what they had for dinner two nights ago. That's a real thing, though. It is. If you ask people, what did you have for dinner two nights ago? Yeah, very few people will be able to tell you. And that's that's a real problem. And it's as simple as what I just stated, is that if your memory is so bad that you can't remember what you had for dinner two nights ago, how are you supposed to remember any of the principles or ideas that are there to change your life? You can't.
1: No, 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 you can't. You can't. You no, know, it it really I think I think it it has to become clear to minds who seek clarity that that is right, and mm-hmm. if you resist that, you're you're still you know I I think there's a lot of of hope, but I think you're on a path to to maybe finding that the simple truth of it. And it's kind of like finally the joy, the simple joy of of running into a ponderosa pine and having it kind of implant in your forehead a little bit. Well, I, I just, you know, maybe you were in the dark or drunk or whatever, you know, because you're not going to walk into one unless you're really enlightened. You're not going to walk into one directly, you know, in sunlight. But if you ever do have the gift of of running into uh, a really richly textured ponderosa pine and you do get maybe a little forehead, you know, damage, you might be reminded that, you know, a lot of the world is that clear Mm -hmm. and that present if you'd only run into it. Just give yourself into that. But we're all afraid. I think this is the problem with this not remembering what you're doing, you know, doing, you know, or what you ate or not remembering. We don't really we're so afraid of running into anything. You know, this is Mm -hmm. the big thing in insurance and car and medical, all all these things just create, you know, please just let me get home and not lose my credit card or have a car accident or something. You know, it's just like and then you want to get home and you think, well, just please let me have an erection at the right time or let me not wet my pants or let me not, you know, forget my grandchildren's name or, you know, and on and on and on it goes. This plea, this fear, but run into the fucking tree is a great way to break through some of this,
0: you know. I heard a story because I'm currently at my in-laws and my father-in-law watches the news. The local news was on and the story was this. A couple that was out looking for their lost dog going door to door, knocked on the door of an elderly gentleman who had fallen two days prior and couldn't get up. They heard his screams, called the police, and the man was saved. This was put out as a feel-good story. They rescued this man. But I couldn't help but think, I really hope I never get to the point in my life where I fall and can't get myself up for two days you know, like a turtle on its back in the sun, you know, that to me is a, a, that's, it's not as terrifying a thought as Alzheimer's or dementia. Losing the mind is definitely the number one, but having your physical being get to the point where it just, you can't perform, basic, I'm basing this off of, you know, getting a boner and, you know, being able to not piss or shit yourself um, getting to that point is really frightening too. And I think that that is, you know, when we talk about taking care of yourself to take care of your mind, that's the other side of the coin too. You know, I, I do these things and my, my father-in-law, he's so funny. He'll say things like, well, what do you, you want to live forever? And I said, Oh no. I said, I'm very comfortable with my, time here knowing that it has an end but i never want to be stuck on the floor for two days
1: well look i think we're gonna we're gonna come back around to this in a beautifully sort of musical harmonic way with the main uh thrust because i think you you you've really done a nice overture there and i i really admire that intuitive sort of sense of that because i think that's right on the money and it's right in tuning fork uh, old spoon and wooden wind chime uh resonance with uh yeah what what I hope we're gonna get to uh you know pretty soon but um aphorism. I do think I'm owed you an aphorism and you know I have honestly David I I'm I think I'm blowing my brain up because I'm really feeling a little bit of, you know, deeper existential pressure because I've got about 35, uh, 36 um, possible ones, but I'm going to really go with a really, really, really basic one because I, I'm working on a lot of different levels as you, and I think, the, our best listeners understand with this memory and consciousness book, which is kind of a lifetime, you know, uh, work. And I, I, I've lived long enough to be able to say that with a straight face. Uh, so here's a really pragmatic one, um, which I could say to my neighbors and, and at Seven Eleven and my students, you know. And I'm, I'm really back trying to be a member of society in a very basic communicative way it's this never underestimate how strange you might seem to someone else you know and i'm i'm going to go with that as being very simple i know that's um but i've got so many things that are a lot more uh high geared uh I, i really think that's an important thing to say because I don't think we know that, and I think it is something to remind ourselves about that. If we really looked at that in 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 really micro second terms, you know, I think about that with with myself in terms of what do my neighbors think about me? You know, you know, what are they observing about my be? And I, I just give them a little bit of credit to think well you know, that guy is, you know, not like us, you know, and I I think that that's an important little thing to bear in mind. So it's simple, but I think it's truthful. Never underestimate how strange you might seem to someone else.
0: I like that. I, (laughs) that resonates with where I am now in a teaching position, becoming comfortable with that, Mm. Which, as I grow, I become increasingly confident with it. I will admit that in my 20s, I was not comfortable with it. Although I say that, but it was always pushing against the urge to be perceived as very strange by other people. So there was this oh, tension between these right. two ideas. Right. Yeah. First, the first one is becoming comfortable sort of in your own skin and recognizing and accepting how strange you could seem to other people, but then also putting on a a, a spooky mask, a crazy mask. To let everybody know. Uh-huh, how yeah,
1: is. I like that. Oh, that's a beautiful. That's an important addition. For, I mean, it speaks to me, but I think it speaks to a lot of our audience. That that yeah, we have put on those masks. Yes, yes. That's a really important add on to to that. And I I love that you did that. That's really important because it comes around. It's it and it's still there because mm-hmm. we, you know we still want to have those masks available to us. Um, you know, like right. You know, it's like uh, you know. I love that mask. That's my favorite oh, mask. Yeah, this is one of my. Thank you. This is one of my favorites. I really do. I, that's why I have it right close to hand all the time. Um, but yeah, I think that was a really nice add-on. And for people who are listening, you know, this is what the art of conversation has so much to do with: is be in ensemble with people. You're not in conflict with them. You're not trying to measure how much you're speaking relative to how much they're speaking. You're trying to play something like a kind of really deep conceptual music. And when something gets rolled out, then you think, well, okay, how can I rhythmatize, melodize, or harmonize with that in some way? And how can I then also maybe taking a little bit of leadership responsibility open up the next phrase of music you know and and that's it really exciting i mean that's what people really are hungry to have is like oh okay well now it's back to me and i've got a i i started the riff off and now well now it's gotten a lot more interesting than where i started what now Betty Boop you know Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. what really is the essence of this whole thing and this is what we're we're trying to in a way I think we're we're kind of elementary school teachers both of us we're not teaching at those levels but I think that we're trying to really reinvent a kind of deep socialization that most people just don't ever get, and I'm not sure you or I ever got really the full, you know, we're it's all broken and smashed and, and mushy and sort of, you know, bad pancake breakfast. But we're trying to make something that looks like a ceremony of significance that other people can be participation figures within. And that's not easy, but we will not yield we will not yield we will continue to try to create Mm -hmm. a very radical alternative uh pancake breakfast of the lost final midnight civilization you know
0: (laughs) did did you just say final pancake breakfast of the lost midnight yeah did i get that right oh beautiful love it That uh, gets my imagination fired up. What is my imaginative
1: All right. All right. Well, it's back to the lost sort of honky-tonk, guitar-strum, diner, milkshake-a-go-go lost early years of rock and roll. You may be aware... That in the early days, major stars, for instance, a kind of, uh, you know, let's say Buddy Holly or Fats Domino would get a hit record on a local station and they would get booked in for touring to pump the hell out of that record. Right. Well, they couldn't Mm -hmm. be in Kansas City and Omaha and Savannah, Georgia all at once, could they? no not on the same night so they would get impersonators this was a real big part of rock and roll history and i think it's it's an interesting storyline that hasn't really been looked at up you know really developed enough tom waits and a couple of other people have, have mentioned it uh, but it was a known thing that you could you know and james brown Uh, is probably the most famous person to talk about it because he auditioned, you know, alternative James Browns. And of course he didn't approve any of them. But Mm -hmm. so there's this idea of impersonation, which connects us back. And I think listeners will be aware, it connects us back to our notions of photography, of, of copies and ersatzing, which is my favorite new verb. And the notion of the hyper-real and simulacrums or simulacrums or whatever. Um, your story is the story of a lost 19, late 1950s Black musician called Ham Pounder. That was his nickname. He was a little bit big, but he was really good looking and very masculine and pushing a kind of uh, smokestack lightning sexual sort of edge in a in a sort of machismo sort of way. At the same time that Little Richard was doing a kind of alternative gender sort of approach, Seventh Day Adventist, ham pounder. Uh, was not a Seventh-day Adventist as Little Richard was. He was a, a solid sort of Baptist, you know, coming out of the uh, Black American Methodist tradition. Well, you are Ham Pounder and you have launched a successful career in 1958 in Toledo, Ohio. Not quite Cleveland, not quite chicago not quite new york but you are set for big things but you have made a deal with the devil because your success hinges on the fact that you saw your manager murder a young girl and you've gone quiet about it and Mm -hmm. you will have enormous success thanks to him if you keep quiet but the supernatural, magical, sentient Terence McKenna, Rupert Sheldrake, Dean Radin World keeps just informing itself. And your impersonators that go out across America, there are three of them. Only three, but there are three. They are more like tulpas. One of them is a neutral faithful to you and your talent. One of them is pure psychopathic evil. And one you're not sure of, but you think you like the music even more than yours. So you are performing live in Detroit. On a Friday night and you're aware that your tulpas are, the three tulpas are outperforming in your name and in your presence and presumably as you at the same time around the country. And you know why they have become not just impersonators, but real tulpas, because you went silent on your manager's murder of a young woman. And you have to now negotiate your success as a black American musician in the late 1950s to wrangle your moral challenge with the murder that you witnessed and haven't come clean on yet. And possibly to amalgamate into a single musical entity the three tulpas, one of whom is, yeah, neutral. you kind of don't know. One of whom is just pure evil, but might be really good. But the third one is actually maybe your best self in a Nietzschean way. So Ham Pounder and the tulpas live.
0: (laughs) Cool. I like it. Good one. Good. Good one. Good one. Good one. All right. With that in mind, I've got all my notes here. What would you like to talk about today?
1: Well, look, I thought um, with your permission and and listeners, I, I really thought we rolled out a big idea. And I'm very grateful for that chance of, of the allegory of the telephone booth. I, I, I'm really feeling like in, in my nonfiction writing with the w- books at hand that the key is coming up with some models, analogies, metaphors, scenarios that people can really clearly understand, and yet are rich enough to to sort of lead to some unpacking and further discussion. So I thought we would go back to the, the three key points that came out of my allegory of the telephone booth. And I would encourage listeners, if they have the time to go back and just listen to the setup of this, because I don't want to, to recapitulate the entire program. But this was an artistic experiment that I engaged in in years past with a, a very hard level science friend support uh, about filming uh, bodies of people entering uh, a discreetly located telephone booth and how when we speeded up the film, the bodies seemed to morph and and become shape-shifting entities um, in a kind of fantastical sort of way. And then we dwelt on this, not in a fantasy speculative sort of sense, but in really raw physical terms of of what this might mean, what we could conclude, and what we would need to be challenged by in coming up with a new kind of, of physics to support it. And the first thing that David and I discussed last time was the notion of tempo, the how these figures moving into the into the booth Uh, move in time in a musical sort of sense and my suggestion then was and David offered a lot of really interesting feedback on this that I found so helpful for my work and I really encourage people to check back on because it's not my words it's his and it's, um, it's a very different perspective but The idea was to to take our minds off of of social history and the 24 seven news cycle and all of the external notions of of time passing and to try to address tempo in a much more personal, physical, psychological, but also metabolical sort of way. David's often talked about uh, his diet and approaches to metabolism that are very controllable uh, at an individual level. And I think that we forget that tempo is is controllable, that it is part of of, of a diet. But while I was thinking about this, this is the first point. Uh, I revisited uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return, and David and I are both tremendous fans of that and I, I did think of that once you see through the Lynchian uh, tropes of of a certain kind of Americana surrealism, a certain element of the darkness in communities, and that's a very age old theme, particularly in American small town literature. I, I once taught a really great class. Uh, And there is a tremendous body of literature on this because this is where American literature really started was the small town. So Lynch fits very much into that. But I I did see it this watching it again. I saw it very much in terms of what David and I have have talked about in extremely critical terms about the we choose kindness uh, ethic in our woke communities where the failure really isn't... I mean, Lynch never cites any political influence. He does make some mentions of, of economic struggle, but it's really about the pressures on individuals to remain empathetic and human. And I was really touched by um, Harry Dean Stanton's performance. Mm-hmm. Me too, as yeah. The, the manager of the Fat Trout Taylor, Trailer Park, And I I didn't know that he recorded that uh, shortly before his death at 91. But I think what a beautiful way to go out. But my point, my first point to you is, um, David, for your response, is uh, that uh, if you peel back the wonderful uh, metaphysics and mythology uh, of of David Lynch and Twin Peaks and just look at it more in really social, human terms. I think there are some great guidelines of where uh, contemporary um, culture has has gone
0: wrong. Um. What do you think? In terms of Twin Peaks
1: and, and well, culture going I, right? I, I guess, I, I guess, well, I guess I'm just, I'm I'm wanting to open up the the allegory of the telephone booth in terms, well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll finish that thought. I got a little bit distracted. Oh. My mother keeps calling. I don't, I'm kind of sorry. Um, oh, I'll get that silenced. Uh, I, I've spoken to her many times today. Um but this is ironic because it's part of what's to being talked about too. <laughs> um, but that's also part of you know you have to choose when you're gonna you know engage um I think the problem with tempo well, this is a beautiful illustration of it. I think the problem of tempo is something that we feel we can't control and i think we can control it and i think we can control it with humanity and and compassion and and also some discipline and self protection you know, I think that 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 is possible. And I think that what we're looking for are models of, of how that's done. The Harry Dean Stanton character within that series, I think, does a beautiful job at that. I think some other characters do, too. I've st- I, When I watched it again, all of the surrealism, all of the metaphysics, all of the Lynchian, you know, stuff mm-hmm. washed mm-hmm. away. And what I saw was not even an allegory, but a very straightforward presentation of what what human community really looks like when it's working well. And the fact that it can't get direction from the economy, from a government, from from whoever, you know, it just can't. It, It needs to be directed from within. So that was my first thought back to you.
0: Right, right. I agree with that 100%. I think that this is something that, that I realize is a major problem from top to bottom, from the kids who I deal with to um, you know, people who are older than I am, sometimes much older than I am. I was thinking about this as well when I was watching the news. A common criticism of the news is that it's all bad news. So it puts you in a bad mood. Well, okay. But we're not really getting to the problem of it, the core problem of it, which is that it is an external way of structuring your life. If it was all good news, it would be just as bad because it would still be telling you it's how just, to do things. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And exactly. so and so when it comes to the internal and shifting the internal, you know, these this is what the Stoics talked about. Um, This is what every wise person, and I do mean every single wise person, has been saying for as long as we have recorded history, that you have to change. You go back to the Emerald Tablets, not even Marcus Aurelius, and you find as above, so below, as within, so without. And I think really what you're getting at is the, the fundamental problem. Of something like marxism or any system of thought doesn't have to be marxism we can take anything that, but, yeah. that if, if you if you change the material conditions around people people will change it's completely backwards it is completely backwards the only way for society to change for the better is from an in the inside out, right? Rios uh, randomly put on Jurassic Park today, the original, the Steven Spielberg film, and you know all of Jeff Goldblum's characters talking about messing with nature and playing God and things like that. We we tend to think about them on a that in a science fiction way of bringing dinosaurs back from sixty five million years of extinction, but taken. More broadly, the idea that you change, you can scientifically or economically or architecturally necessarily engineer the inner lives of people is true, but insufficient, right? Because it doesn't, it just, we've proven that it doesn't matter as things have got, as all those things have gotten quote unquote better, people become more and more miserable and it's because everything is flipped.
1: Well, I think that's a uh, that I, I really feel that, you know, I really do. And I think that's a good response to this first level of of unpacking the telephone booth allegory and our sense of that what was going on with that artistic experiment from my past was really about looking at notions of of tempo from the individual psychological through the social and then to. We all do get to the social element and we want to get to the social element. And I think what you've said is that that we also want to to not lose ourselves in an externalization of that, where all these things are imposed upon us, which I think we do feel now. I mean, I I do. I I really feel like uh, there are some basic parameters that are are now uh, at close range imposed upon me by political forces that i once you know used to align myself with i i really feel very strange that way uh but the second element that we talked about um with the telephone booth was the notion of as these bodies are changing so just to remind listeners we i was Videotaping people coming and going in an ordinary phone booth. But at such speed, the bodies seemed to intermingle and become kind of one body, or, you know, it, it was a, a very strange, elastic, plastic mess. And my point for last episode was that this speaks to our notion of the desire for fluidity of identity. And yet there is a conflict there because we also want to have an integrity of personality and a continuity mm-hmm. of consciousness. And we are also have some, you know, impositions from, you know, outside. David, your bill is due. Are you going to renew or not? You know, it's mm-hmm. like make that decision. You you know, there, there are some things that are not uh, as negotiable as we would like. And the fact that we want to be seen as a panda with or without a penis in one moment really may not influence our credit rating or the fact that we will even be uh, really treated. At an emergency room, you know, let alone treated well. So there's a a, a give and take about the notion of the flexibility of identity um, that I mentioned last time. And um, one of our listeners uh, sent me an email reminding me about the strange uh, pre-TikTok, way pre-TikTok, like half a century, uh, gimmick of how many people could you pack into a telephone booth. That was a real wild, crazy thing that young people did back in the 1950s. And I thought, you know, that's very interesting because that made Time Life, you know, magazines, Life Magazine. It was a Life Magazine cover. And yet my students today would have no idea about the strange fads That were in the past. And i one of the words that I'm including in my um, smaller work about 52 words away is the word fad, uh, because I think it's greatly misunderstood, it's greatly denigrated, um, because, you know, I mean, what's a fad? Uh, humanity could be a fad, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about time and scale and 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 scope and magnitude. But yeah, well, that's true of everything, you know. It's like you know, a fad might be okay. So that was the 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 second point. But the really crucial point in in something that we're prosecuting on multiple levels is that the enormous benefits and the enormous restrictions and potentially uh claustrophobic distress unto death of of the container as as central metaphor oh right so, so deeply embedded within language and david and i are not just we didn't pull this out of our butts this comes from a few uh, really important people george lakoff Uh, Gilbert Ryle there's there there's a lot of thinking behind this um sooner or later everyone who is intelligent uh gets to the notion of categories and in math terms that is the set it is the same sort of idea it's inescapably important Alfred North Whitehead and Russell uh, uh just couldn't get away from it so um I don't think that we should try to get away from it. I think the notion of who is containing the multitudes, this is where we left off our last discussion. Is it the individual who wants to be these many different personalities and and spirits and beings, or is it the phone booth? And therefore, and David kind of challenged me to sort of like shed a little bit more light on, well, what would the phone booth be in a bigger sense today? What What are we really looking at as a container? Uh, and I think that that is the really great challenge of, of the moment. And I mm-hmm. have an idea about that. I have an idea. And it goes back to um, an exercise that, that was taught to me when I was working with blind and, and, and severely disabled people we were all of the sighted people were blindfolded and we were given noisemakers out on a fairly good sized playing field under good conditions sunny skies you know no rain nothing to fall over or, or really hurt ourselves with you know un, wasn't entirely impossible but the idea was to find others making the same sound with the same noisemaker it was kind of like find your own kind amidst the the chaos of of darkness and this open field that didn't have a fence, but you, you were really struggling to sort of wander off it if you were blindfolded or amongst the natively blind or disabled people. You know, that was more than they could do. So it was a pretty good container situation without an obvious wall around it. But the notion of the container that we formed, or at least that I formed, had everything to do with, I think, with what we're talking about today in terms of social media responses and uh, just the simple, "Ah, mm, ah, mm," you know, sounds around you, like, "Oh, oh, you're over there, right? I'm gonna, you know, and as crude as that was in a really elementary school teacher biology sort of way, I think it was very profound, and I I, I don't know that it at least had the the benefit of uh, not an externalization of boundaries imposed upon us, but the creation of boundaries from within,
0: you know? Something that you said that was so interesting about these containers, I like this idea of flipping it from an overbearing system that keeps us contained to how much stress that particular container can actually hold. Because when you look at something like social media, for example, it's been said to death that it is too difficult to... Schizophrenic, too fast, too short, all the and all of those things are true. But when I think about it, the feeling of it is one of imposition. Twitter is something that's imposed on me, right? Yes. But what if it's so weak that it's simply a system that actually can't contain even one person, let alone the millions that it holds? right?
1: Well, you know, this is where, see, that you, as we used to say, if you have a good idea, you can go home now, but you're already home. Um, I, I think that's a really brilliant idea. And I think this is a great example of a technique that Dave and I continue to talk about in terms of inversion, but it's really here. I mean this is a major judo thing of of asking well what about if these authoritarian parental oceanic giant container presences that we so feel restricted by what if they're actually very fragile and and yeah. and really weak and, and really not up to the challenge. And I think that's a very powerful jujitsu of spirit approach. And I also think it's a very compassionate, uh, realistic adult Lyceum Chautauqua point of view that harmonizes with William James. And some of his best moments is probably his best known book. Um, talking about in just speculative terms the way he could do so well as if you were just out for a walk with him you know and the question what what if god whatever you mean that to be because he's speaking to a world audience and fluent in many languages and really really in touch with several well certainly the major world religious points of view he asked you know what if if what you mean by god or the gods or whatever, what if that presence, if it is, is somehow separate from you, needs and benefits from your loyalty, from your strength, from your belief, from your courage, from your engagement, the same way that you benefit from that when you get a, a friendly greeting from a neighbor or Uh, an embrace from a lover or uh, you know a collision with a child of yours I mean what if the world really does depend on you being there and that that you know reality is not repeatable that this is an evolutionary system that is really not a system at all it's an organic strange you know it's like a female manatee just going crazy trying to get out to open her water. And uh, what if we are all part of the God, you know, and our belief and our support and our energy and just, it's a feedback loop, you know, isn't that a really simple sort of idea that Again, like, you know, like the Hermeticum stuff is like, well, like, isn't this, you know, pretty obvious? I mean, we we're like, you know, dealing with ancient Greek and Egyptian and Indian ideas, but we're trying to like put it in street level terms. I mean, how much more apparent can the occult adamant truth of the world be, you know?
0: Right, right. And you can feel when you begin to think in those terms, you don't feel the oppression anymore because the boundaries of the idea itself are infinite, right? You're butting up against a psychic barrier when the idea is too small, that humans, as people who are known to create structures out of our dreams, we create structures in the material world to match the size of the psychic arena that we're working in. So an idea like communism, for example, naturally compels human beings to create camps, to create oppressive governments, things like that, because we're manifesting the boundaries that are in our mind with those ideas. Whereas if you don't necessarily hold that and you have this free range, open mind, you have no need to create a psychic prison around it because that's not what's being generated in the first place. Well
1: said. Well said. I, I think that, 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 uh, I mean, we're going to have more to say about the, the price paid for containers and the benefits from them in, in all sorts of ways from the very physical, to uh the social structural to the purely conceptual and metaphorical uh there's so many things going on there but i think what david just sort of rounded that off by is is really really important and uh this is the i think the core idea about uh that comes from language is the notion of containers and the problem that emerges from all of the metaphors around it is a a tendency towards ownership, possession, and therefore loss. And I'm finding this is really deeply ingrained in the notion of of the memory idea, because memory is all about container storage. You know, it's just, it's everywhere you go. Even Bruno's beautiful memory palace is still You know, that's like the Alexandrian library. Well, it can get burned, it can get destroyed. You know, it's like, that's not robust enough for me as an idea about where memory lives. And I think lives is my crucial idea. It's not where memory is stored. And we have to fight against these tendencies within language. They are inherent within the language code. And as far as my experience goes, they certainly apply to the six major languages. I'm looking into some more feedback from, from other people within, say, the other four of the 10 major languages. But I'm not really that concerned about how literal those connections are all are linguistically. I think that that... Philosophically, the idea is correct that the notion of container metaphors permeate language with a kind of peculiar biological almost inherence. You know, I think there's something really fundamental. If if you were to look at language in a William Burroughs sense of, of, of some sort of entity, you know, some sort of sentient presence, well, then you would say the container notion system uh program paradigm is somehow elemental to that entity and we take that on board because of our dependence on language and i'm suggesting that that we can find new ways to maybe leverage some more strength from that you know imagine just fighting uh you know a large amphibious being your size mm-hmm. It would be ugly. Mm -hmm. It would be a fight to the death. You know, it would really be intense. But imagine if you could somehow make peace with that strange monster and you negotiate some sort of relationship where you can both draw strength from each other. God only knows what that creature is going to call upon you to do in that dimension. I don't, I'm i not ready to go there but I want you to be able to leverage this amphibious captain uh, of your own shadow so to speak and uh, an amphibious captain of your own shadow is not a bad one actually uh, if you could do that I think that that well if we could all do that I think that we could really start taking on crustaceans and really big reptiles and really difficult things you know so i i really enjoyed uh that i i really appreciate having a chance to unpack a little bit more my allegory of the telephone booth and i will r- remind listeners that uh you know the, the obvious influence is, is plato's allegory of the cave which comes from the republic uh i i stand by the reading of plato even as many of our woke uh elite institutions forego the great classics of of Western civilization, I'm just simply revolted by that and I will take arms against that. I don't think that's a moral position that I want to even uh, come close to but the other uh more recent example which i really encourage people to to look at is rupert Shelday sheldrake's analogy or allegory of the television set which you can find in his the new science of life which is the first book that broke him open uh very controversial in its own time It remains so but it's the basis of, of his whole career and as a cambridge uh Trained biologist, deeply embedded in the world of science, and a certainly a legitimate contemporary of, of, say, Richard Dawkins. Uh, He remains an interesting outsider artist in his trade that um, Dave and I both have a great deal of time for. A beautifully articulate writer in the Lewis Thomas uh, vein of of someone just gifted with words as well as. you know, attuned to uh, to science in its deepest and practical sense. So, my Absolutely. allegory of the telephone booth from last episode. Uh, I don't know. And um, I think
0: I think you can break it into okay. So, axiom one is that uh, containers necessarily have are are boundaries. Axiom two containers contain things cm3 they contain multiple things remember the container contains multitudes that's an important point mm. and four, that the container is the container has the ability to naturally manifest itself in 3d reality right those are right. those are those are four very important parts so i think that if you begin to operate outside of the field metaphor of the container and you begin to i like this idea of moving from doing battle with a man-sized amphibious aquatic creature because it calls to mind evolutionary struggles a kind of super return to where we once were i think it psychically has a lot to do with the enduring almost 40-year popularity of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, And I think that, you know, moving from the container metaphor to a metaphor that does not have boundaries, because when you're picturing your battle, with the amphibian, you're not thinking of any walls. At least I wasn't picturing walls when I was picturing this fight, right? Picturing wide open space. You can go anywhere you want to as long as you can use some kind of diplomacy to negotiate with this creature, right? So it is, I like these slightly complicated metaphorical turns because once you define something by the logic of the container itself, you can pin it like a butterfly and you can move on to bigger and better ones. So I like that the, I like that your metaphor of the container is so vivid and concrete. I use those words very intentionally because it gives us something that we can then move away from In, into the interaction with the amphibious creature, right? What is? What do the surroundings look like? What are we fighting about? How do we communicate? What kind of strength powers does this thing have? What kind of mental capacity does it have? All right, now we're working with a cool metaphor, right? And nowhere in that metaphor is what are the boundaries? What are we supposed to do and not do? Uh, You know, how do I interact with my, you know, none of that, none of those rules are there. It's just, how do you grapple with with a Ninja Turtle?
1: Well, you know, I think we would all do a pay-per-view, yes, to watch you grapple with an amphibious, muscular, liquid, slippery version of yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think I could have. I can't imagine uh, under any circumstances what would keep me from watching that. You know, I would want to see that, and I would, I would know in my heart that whatever the the verdict outcome was, it would be a triumph of something beyond my understanding. And I think that's really cool. I, I love your notion of the super return. I think this is a good example for people to listen to. And I really, I, I'm working with some uh, students. I've had my first day in class. and I already, you know, I can't help myself. I'm a quick study. Uh, I think danger and, and uh, lack of options taught me that. Um, and I know there are some, some smart a couple of really smart kids who are also really tense and urgent and, and needy. And I, I get that feeling already, but I think that they're the kind of people even as young as they are, who are hip to the notion of a lot of mysterious, interesting dynamic and, and really potentially forbidden freight can be loaded into apparently simple forms that slip through you know the super return well you know we've had big things of oh, the eternal return you know well so we don't really hear that anymore you know Nietzsche and and uh, kind of you know but the super return that Dave has just laid on suddenly it's all reinvented and we've got, Uh, wrestling with with really aquatic monsters suddenly on the main card, you know? And I think that's the way, uh, that's the positive way to view the chaos of our contemporary moment is that it is possible to suddenly give birth to some really interesting monsters who may or may not have a radically different game plan. I mean, I think that monsters doing very mundane things is is absolutely the essence of reality TV. So there's a lot that's going on there that I think that is really cool. But I I would love to hear you. I'm going to challenge you for next time to explore this idea of the super return, because I think there's something really I feel like. A whole bunch of crazy energy from the Oakland Roller Derby, you know, past of where they're getting this sort of whippet thing sort of going, you know, uh, around the edge and cotton candy spinning and summer ending and things turning and the notion of. Well, how gear teeth work. Do you do square? Do you do them, you know, pointed? There's a lot of ancient technology, magic, wisdom sort of flipping around in this strange thing. But I I think that uh, I could see a band, you know, David Osborne and the Super Return.
0: I like it. I like it. Would you like to hear... My imaginative. Challenge.
1: I do. Ham Pounder. Come on now, man. We're rocking and rolling. Right. Toledo and Kansas City and everywhere. I was Super- taking I a bit of a
0: break. Floor from, floor. I was taking a bit of a break from the garage. My brother-in-law is visiting. So I've been recording in the garage, but I want to be in the garage for this one just so that I can be a bit more expressive with it. Okay, so Ham Pounder and his tulpas. Yeah. Impounder Pounder is playing Detroit. His Tolpas are playing different shows. The neutral tulpa has decided that this will be his last show. He wants to pick up his life as a Korean chef, making jubche and bulgogi, recipes he picked up in the Korean War. He's playing Los Angeles, and his hit song is Blowfish on the Han the psychopathic one is in new york killing more women mostly ones related to the manager he's left a groupie in a hotel room chained to a radiator with a dog bowl on the floor his song is the low light in her eyes ooh and the and the really good one is in las vegas dressed like a woman he practices polyamory he's getting filleted on stage while he's playing his number one smash hit called she can't sit down. Now, Ham Pounder wants to get rid of these tulpas. He's planning on playing a quiet song tonight called "I in the Palm. He met a quiet young white man in a diner over pancakes the morning of the show. And while he gets to talking to this man, he finds out that he too is a veteran of the Korean War. And this veteran relates to him a story of a time he saw a gang rape occurring in an alley in Busan Air Force Base and turned away from it. And he's been living with it ever since. A Pounder feels a connection to this man because of his similar guilt with the girls that his manager has killed. And he decides that this man will be a perfect ur an Ultra-Tulpa. So on stage, Hand Pounder brings out a glass eye of Fatima that becomes a beam of white light that reaches into the front row. All the energy of the tulpas beams into this white man who becomes a huge star, reaching number one over and over again with songs like Blowfish on the Han," The Low Light in Her Eyes, and She Can't Sit Down. In 1992, he passes away in that same theater which he could never leave, which he had turned into a Korean bulgogi and japchae restaurant and which has numerous bodies of his multiple female admirers buried under the boards. I don't know what happens to Ham Pounder after that. (laughs) You know what?
1: I'll tell you this. If I had to Make a Vegas bet on the winner of a full-scale, hand-to-hand, unaided combat between you and a large, even luminous, amphibious, monster (laughs) version of yourself. I'm going to back you. I, I I'm going to go against the supernatural thing here. I mean, I I I think you're like me. I think we're always in favor of the luminous, amphibious, monstrous sort of you know sides of things. But I I, I think I'm going to go
0: with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm uh, I'm glad you like it. Do you have a tool and a tip? For us today
1: i do have a tool and a tip and i i want to uh put my tool in terms of uh do not forsake uh long-term speculation in your life try to keep some records you know try to keep pace with thoughts as they change in time because i have been very devoted as i've shared with david and I i think many times in the show about my dream studies and i really feel like i'm getting close to something important in terms of uh, understanding how the the dream experience indexes against the mind body problem i mean i'm not going to dismiss the body issues i know that there are issues in terms of stress diet the heat of a room illness, you know, I understand all that. But I I want to um, show, as in perform, uh, what is the benefit of really keeping a kind of forensic track of of this. And I want to contrast a very early morning dream. And my thesis here is that as we are uh, definitely uh, coming out of A second or or even tertiary level of sleep there are certain dream characteristics that that do appear and mine may not be yours but i think that there my point is that there are different characteristics relative to different sleep patterns and i've noticed that when i have extremely realistic generally speaking uh anxiety-based dreams that may not be that extreme but that 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 prey on a little you know just you know they're kind of in keeping with my waking reality it's because i'm close to to reality and um for instance i had an experience um two days ago of my next door neighbor who is uh is married and has a nice wife and they're um they're very mellow people, I guess. They're sort of relatively a little bit older than I am. But uh, he was ex Universal Studios musician uh, and has a beautiful studio, which I would love to, you know, partake in. But we're really not that close. But in the dream, he was married to Lydia Yeknovich, who All right. I th- I think that that some of our listeners may be familiar with. I I, I like Lydia's work in many ways, but I also feel very disappointed. I I don't feel like uh, there's ever been a connection with my work from her. Um, So there's a kind of a strange tension there but she would certainly be the last person to be married to my next door neighbor but what was interesting about the dream is that they they were very much together and they were we were living in a kind of strangely composited uh environment which links back to some of david lynch's scenes that he uses uh in twin Peaks: the return the idea of the dutchman's which is actually uh filmed in a, in a motel, which I have beautiful pictures of, which is still there in, in North Bend. Um, it's the Mount SI, uh, motel, um, but a classic old roadside motel, but the Dutchman's was, was really where John Dillinger and gangsters of the 1930s hit out and is a lost place. And in the show, uh, one of the key figures Ray says to, uh, the Agent Cooper doppelganger, well, it's not a real place. And the doppelganger goes, I, I know what it is, you know, because it's it's a metaphysical part of the whole Twin Peaks world. So it was that kind of situation. But in this stream, I, I'm just not doing quite enough to maintain my my yard. And and to deal with pine needles and things, so there's this sort of aura of disapproval. It's not anything more serious than that, but that is very much, I think, uh, uh, an emblem of the near-to-waking anxiety sort of dream. Whereas I contrast, and and I I, I have I put forward this idea of dreams running between, oscillating between emblem as in a really powerful visual in image and ceremony, a much more complicated sense of narrative. And I want to go into the narrative thing uh, and how we manage that in dream terms a little bit next time, because I think it really rounds up so many things that David and I have been talking about in terms of architecture, photography, initiation rights, the atomic bomb and a lot of other things. But I wanna focus just in entire opposition to this very straightforward anxiety dream about my real next door neighbor and a, a fellow writer figure who couldn't possibly be romantically involved with him complaining about me not keeping up with my pine needle issues. I wanna contrast it with this image of me taking photographs of an animal that starts off as a kind of very modest, small rodent, like a shrew. I have many skulls of, of these kinds of animals, you know, relatively small, the skulls you can hold in your palm. But this is a full-fledged living animal. As I photograph the animal in this deeper dream, and I'm I'm asserting here that this is a much deeper, earlier in the night, different level of consciousness dream. My photography changes the nature of the animal. And with each photograph, the animal becomes not only larger, that is important. We forget size is important. It is important, but it becomes more what I would call dangerous as in a more capable predator to a point, to a point. And then I start running out of old school film. So it's a non-digital dream. And I think that's interesting. And as I begin to run out of film, I have finally gotten to a tiger But the tiger, with my last shot, winces and becomes less formidable. A little bit sway back, a little bit arthritic, old. And tiger skin hanging on tiger body is more poignant than old people with, you know, chicken necks and, you know, crow's feet. And, you know, it's animals too get old you know, and there's a woman in the background who comes forward and says, well, we've got to put that one out to some circus. And I haven't really paid any attention to her before in this photographic shoot sort of experience. And I'm really just sickened by that sort of idea. And I lead this tiger who was started off as this little rodent shrew sort of creature and who really isn't walking well it has like hip dysplasia like dogs you know the, the the joints just simply aren't functioning and i think well i'm not going to fucking lead you out to some circus or to to be shot in the head unless i'm going to be the one to do it and i i go out outside there's just one simple door and out in the street There is a bronze lion that is a beautiful amalgam of the classic British Empire lion and the classic Chinese lion, you know. And it's bronze and it comes to life. And it's it's stiff. It's not working well because it was just a statue only seconds before but it leans in and the tiger climbs on its back and they walk away together without my help, not to a circus, not to death, but to some partnership situation they can create themselves. And I think that is the, an example of the richness and vividness and possibility of deep dreaming as a resource to our understanding of consciousness and identity that we often lose because it's occluded, occluded by the nearer to waking experiences that are trivialized, more so, so you know, socialized and not bearing the deep uh, metaphysical, mentally sort of lessons that maybe experiences within earlier moments of dreaming are trying to help us with. And this is actually talked about by uh, Black Elk in Black Elk Speaks and other shaman figures about Kind of how to avoid the noise, you know, how to listen to the voice of the monsters, the angels, the demons, the ancestors, the ghosts, free from the social chatter that is going to be with you upon waking anyway. So you don't need to listen to it, you know. So that's my my tool. It's a big one, I know.
0: That's awesome. you have a tip for us? I do.
1: And I I think it's... uh... Well... Don't have for breakfast tomorrow what you had today. Simple as that, you know? I'm going to go try to get really basic. Really basic.
0: I like that. I like the balance between the two. The The tool in particular, It it, got, it gave me this thought. <clears throat> and I'm sure you've covered this in your memory book. And I'm sure we've talked about something similar to it on this show. But the whole time I'm hearing, you know, the tiger and the tiger is getting old and then this mixture of between the the English lion and the Chinese lion statue and they team up together. I'm wondering why do we remember dreams at all? There's value in them, but well, you and I aren't part of the whole brain recording paradigm, but let's say you were there's no way for a brain to know what's valuable and what's not. That whole paradigm is off because you can't, you can't tell what dreams are quote unquote good for until you've had time to remember them in the first place. So I was just thinking, and I was like, wow, Lydia Yuknovich dating his neighbor and complaining about his pine needle problem. I would think that you would say it's because they're the same thing.
1: Well, I think what you've done in terms of asking why remember certain dreams? Why not? What what's going on there? Is really at the heart of, of the entire problem of consciousness studies, which affects All we call cognitive science, neuroscience, the physical, you know, physiological MRI-driven MD-based people, the psychology-based people, the philosophy of mind people. There, there isn't a coherent framework there. There is just not, and there has. In fact, we're we're a lot further from that than we were two thousand years ago. And I think that is a peculiar, peculiar thing. Um, We're just not able to ask questions at the right time to go back to our notion of tempo. You know, it it, it just is simply not something that is happening. And in fact, I think we're much more ignorant about these issues. And so all of them get hived off to a kind of uh, new age, uh, you know, sort of world of, of the Esalen Institute. And I think it's part of what has denigrated Rupert Sheldrake's career in the eyes of a formal scientist. But really, I mean, the question of why, I mean, what does to remember? I mean, what? my I, I know where my member is. I think you know where your member is. Are we re-member? I mean, it's like, I mean, really. I, I just think any time there's a prefix involved, it's like re or x or something. I, I've got a little bit of. Uh, I, I've gone to Orange Alert. I've, I'm, I'm not on Yellow. You know, yeah, because you don't
0: know when the first time was that you well,
1: thought it, that's completely crazy. I mean, you know, someone says like, "I've never seen that person in my life," and I would just say, "That's an astonishing claim. That is an astonishing claim." <laughs> Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, where does this end? And I think that that if we really start peeling this back, uh, we can easily get lost. But my my proposition for my memory and consciousness book, which ties in directly to everything we've been talking about in this episode, is that it all hinges on the notion of of the container uh metaphor that permeates language and underpins the essential nature of consciousness. And it it then predicates subject and predicate. It it predicates uh, the notion of you are in control of your storage space. Remember the episode when you were talking about the storage space, the physical storage space that you had, and the question of whether or not there had been cyclone or tornado damage to it. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing to review and 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 to maybe bring back to next time because and it also connects with all of the fairy tales of you know why do giants bury their heart or bury their magic thing under some stone under a mountain That doesn't seem very sensible, does it? I mean, I mean then someone could discover it and destroy them well, yeah, but on the other hand, keep things distributed, you know don't have everything don't carry everything of worth in your pocket because what's maybe not your real, you know, it's not your pocket can be taken from you. There's all sorts of things going on there, but I think that you, you flushed out some really important ideas about where, well, certainly where ideas about um, consciousness and memory are just failing us because they're, sort of recycled ideas that haven't really been prosecuted with any real interest
0: on that note do you have an official dream for the show
1: yes i do i do and i i think this is um i think this is an example of a moment of crossing over between a potentially deeper dream state and i want to say i am acknowledging the physiological notion of of sleep in the sense that it might be monitored by a sleep clinic one of my problems with the notion of of the physiology of, of sleep studies is that they're conducted in these incredibly artificial environments that no one can really be comfortable in and i i just i don't really feel that any of their evidence is valid um, because you're not in your own bed, and and you're you know it's just it's just awful. I don't know if people have been through that, but I have many times for experimental reasons. But I think this might suggest a moment of movement between the kind of petty, simple domestic uh, anxiety of the pine cone, you know, pine needle situation, and the deeper thing of this mysterious embattled tiger. Uh, I, for whatever reason, archetypally, occasionally click with Robert Redford. Now, I don't think I do that because of him being a, a famous movie star, because, or certainly any personal connection, because I... I think Clint Eastwood would be as major a figure. And I've had two personal connections with Clint Eastwood. And I I have a much greater affinity uh, with his body of work for good and and in critical terms. I really don't have that much relationship to, to Robert Redford. The only one that I have that I can think of, and I think this is driving these connections, is that Robert M. Persig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, features Robert Redford in his second and only, he only wrote two novels, uh, Lila, or, and it's about Redford, meeting Redford in a New York hotel, about the discussion of movie rights for Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I think that in his very simple way, he beautifully captures something of uh, the humanity of Redford, but also the, just the fundamental superficial nature of him. That's the only reason I can think of why Redford has appeared uh, about seven times in my celebrity. So he's he's high on my, my list. And I, I have, again, I have no personal connection. If anything, I'm kind of, eh, you know. Eh, it would be the word. But in this case, I was uh, trying to... Well, he looked awkward in a party, sort of summer writers, artists, uh, get-together sort of environment uh, sense. And I wasn't the host or I had any idea about what was going on. But I was concerned that he kind of was looking a little bit disoriented and he was older. He was his own age in this. So this is age true. And then I found myself and I I noticed, I think this was a a, a movement towards waking. I found myself trying to pitch to him my uh, novel TV series idea of based on private midnight, my book. And I I felt a distinct sense of discomfort in doing that. But I thought to myself, well, this is Robert Redford, and I've got to, you know, uh, be be doing. And he did seem kind of like he was looking for some help and, and just an anchor point in this kind of fluid social environment. And then he brought it right around to this old school television thing that people were watching a big screen with two smaller screens showing the exact same thing, but looking like out of a 1960s sort of spy thing of this is the, the intelligence agency, giving you your briefing and the show or the segment news segment that was on was about some new TikTok music director. And, Right in the middle of my spiel to him, when I'd finally gotten up the nerve to talk to him about pitching an idea and was not worried about getting him more carrot cake or something, he completely broke off with that and said, we should really pay attention to this. This This is important. This is why we're here. And so drew me back to this Asian woman who was speaking on behalf of some new TikTok phenomenon. And I thought, okay, okay, yeah, he's right. That's I remember now. That's that's why we're here.
0: (laughs) Nice. All right. I like that. That'll do it for us for tonight. Next week, we'll talk more about amphibious wrestling.
1: David, you were I just love this idea. I think we've got to actually somehow bring this to uh, I don't know. Like visualization. I want to see you wrestle, you know, the amphibious version of yourself. That'd be hot, you know? We could (laughs) sell fucking tickets to that man. All right.